So I'll admit I did go a little bit overboard last week, and that's on me for trying to cover thousands of years at once. But uh, this week we're going to slow down. We're going to cover just like 120 years, and then my dad won't yell at me for talking so fast. This is Minnesota Jones. Welcome to Minnesota Jones, an audio adventure where we'll explore all of the things that make Minnesota, Minnesota. I'm your host, Piper Jones, and I've always been a pretty big fan of the place I get to call home. Last week, we covered a lot of historical ground stemming from the beginning of time to, like, the 1870s-ish, and we're gonna keep that train rolling, covering from where we left off to today. And yes, that was a very bad and very intentional pun. As part of the American frontier, Minnesota attracted settlers and homesteaders from around the world, with its growth initially centered on timber, agriculture, and railroads. In the 1870s, railroads began advertising over in Europe to attract people to the area, figuring more people meant more products would be shipped using their rail lines. These advertisements promised wealth and happiness on Minnesota's limitless and fertile prairie. And into the early 20th century, European immigrants arrived in significant numbers, particularly from Scandinavia, Germany, and Central Europe. And that's part of how by 1900 we had 1.7 million people living here. Logging, farming, and railroads were mainstays in Minnesota's early economy. The logging industry first sprung up around Minneapolis, with sawmills at St. Anthony Falls and logging centers in Pine City, Marine on St. Croix, Stillwater, and Winona processing vast quantities of timber. These cities were on rivers that were ideal for transportation, like the Mississippi and the St. Croix. The railroads also hauled lumber to Minneapolis and out to the prairie, where the wood was used to build homes and barns. We also have the logging industry to thank for our local urban legend, Paul Bunyan. This massive man of mythos was brought to Minnesota by loggers migrating in from Maine, who told stories of this gargantuan man who could fell entire forests with one swing of his axe, whose footprints formed the Great Lakes, and who now has an 18-foot statue in his honor standing in Bemidji among many, many other places in Minnesota that have contributed to, like, the Paul Bunyan experience. But we'll get to that in another episode. Farming continued to be a driving force of the Minnesotan economy. Wheat was hauled from farms across the state to Minneapolis, where St. Anthony Falls had been tapped to power flour mills. By 1900, Minnesota mills led by Pillsbury, Northwestern, and the Washburn Crosby Company, which later became General Mills, were grinding 14.1% of the nation's grain. Minneapolis was the milling capital of the world for over 50 years, and it was a booming industry, literally, with the Washburn A mill suffering a catastrophic explosion in 1878. But milling wasn't the only industry Minnesota was flexing in. The state's iron mining industry was established with the discovery of iron in the Vermilion and Mesabi ranges in the 1880s. The Sudan mine was first established in 1884 and was actively mined until 1962. When the mine closed, it reached 2,341 feet, or 713.5 meters below the surface. It's now a part of the Lake Vermilion State Park, which offers two different tours to the public. One that explores the historic mining facilities, and another that focuses on a currently active underground physics laboratory. Around the time Sudan Mine first opened, the Masabi Range was discovered by brothers Leonidas and Alfred Merritt. Shortly thereafter, mining began on the Cuyuna Range near Brainerd in 1911. Minnesota was established as the nation's leading state for iron production, which it still is to this day. With all of these industries combined, it meant that when the United States became involved in World War I in 1917, Minnesota was able to provide wheat, iron, and other goods to help supply food, weapons, and clothing for the war effort. Which is awesome, but for something a little less awesome. You know how last episode I made Minnesota sound super progressive in terms of how we treat black people? 
<laughs> well, uh, historically and recently, that's not proven to be the case. In June of 1920, three African-American men, Elias Clayton, Elmer Jackson, and Isaac McGee, were lynched by a mob of thousands of white men up in Duluth for the alleged rape and robbery of 19-year-old Irene Tuscan. A physician who examined her found no physical evidence of rape, but this didn't stop the mob of somewhere between 1,000 and 10,000 people from convicting these men in kangaroo court and hanging them by the neck from a lamppost until dead. Now, admittedly, this is the only recorded instance of lynching of African Americans in Minnesota, as the state did pass anti-lynching legislation in April of 1921. But, I mean, barely a hundred years later, George Floyd was another black man killed here in Minnesota for a crime he didn't commit. So, history is a circle. Nothing ever really changes. But as long as we're getting depressing, let's talk about the Great Depression. Industrial development and the rise of manufacturing caused the population of Minnesota to shift gradually from the more rural areas to cities during the early 20th century, but farming was still a pretty big deal. Minnesota's economy was hit hard by the Great Depression, resulting in lower prices for farmers, layoff among iron miners, and labor unrest. During the Great Depression, statewide unemployment reached over 25%. As many as 70% of iron ore miners lost their job. And to make things worse, western Minnesota and the Dakotas were hit with drought from 1931 to 1935. In 1918, Minnesotan farmers, workers, and business owners founded a new political party called the Farmer Labor Party, which reached its height of power during the Depression, when Minnesota's governor, both of its U.S. senators, and most of the state legislature were all party members. To help workers during the Great Depression, Governor Floyd Olson signed an order establishing a minimum wage of 45 cents an hour. That's comparable to $7.32 in today's money, which is still more than the current federal minimum wage. The Farmer Labor Party was also responsible for passing laws that lowered taxes and prevented banks from taking away people's homes and land if borrowers could not repay loans. When FDR established New Deal programs, it provided some economic turnaround for Minnesotans. The Works Progress Administration provided jobs building roads, bridges, and parks, and a number of these WPA parks were constructed along Minnesota's Highway 100. Many of them have been destroyed as the highway expanded to meet traffic needs of the growing Minneapolis population, but I accidentally stumbled across the remaining Grazer Park over in Robbinsdale, where you can still find a beehive oven and a very dilapidated rock garden. It was originally part of the Lilac Way series of parks, and I can only imagine how beautiful it must have been when it was completed in 1939. It's currently stewarded by the Robbinsdale Lions Club, who kicked off restorations in 2009. The WPA wasn't the only program providing jobs after the Depression. The Civilian Conservation Corps provided manual labor jobs related to the conservation and development of natural resources in rural lands owned by federal, state, and local governments. The CCC was designed to provide jobs for young men and to relieve families who had difficulty finding work during the Great Depression. The CCC also led to a greater public awareness and appreciation of the outdoors and the nation's natural resources and continued the need for a carefully planned, comprehensive national program for the protection and development of natural resources. The CCC operated separate programs for veterans and for Native Americans. In fact, approximately 15,000 Native Americans participated in the program, helping them weather the Great Depression. And while we're talking about Native Americans, the Indian Restoration Act of 1934 provided tribes with a mechanism of self-government. This act was meant to be a walkback of efforts to have Native Americans assimilate to white culture, instead embracing the historical Native cultures of these tribes. It also let Native Americans manage their own assets again, specifically land and mineral rights, and included provisions intended to give people living on reservation a sound economic foundation. You know, all the things that should have been a part of the original treaties we forced them into. In 1941, the U.S. joined the fun of World War II, which helped pull Minnesota out of its economic slump. 
workers shipped out tons of iron, lumber, and other products to supply the armed forces. Among these products was Spam, a delightful little brick of processed meat that was introduced by Minnesota-based company Hormel in 1937. There's a whole museum down in Austin, Minnesota dedicated to the stuff, but that's a story for another episode. And I know, I've said that like eight times. I'm just gonna keep baiting hooks because once we're out of the history, I'm going to have fun. <laughs> After the war, industrial development quickened. New technology increased farm productivity through automation of feedlots for hogs and cattle, machine milking at dairy farms, and raising chickens in large buildings. Planting became more specialized with hybridization of corn and wheat, with new special strains that were like resistant to disease. Innovations in farm machinery from mines like Adolf Ronning and Norman Borlaug made tractors and combines the norm, and it made it so much easier and faster to harvest crops. This meant fewer farm workers were needed, so thousands of rural workers moved to the cities to find jobs. By 1950, for the first time, more Minnesotans lived in cities than in rural areas. Suburbia sprang up to meet that increased need for housing, and transportation was more convenient than ever. This increased mobility in turn created more jobs. Minnesota became a center of technology after World War II. A company called Engineering Research Associates was formed in 1946 and later became Control Data Corporation, but they specialized in developing computers for the United States Navy. New factories making chemicals and machinery provided new job opportunities, which helped recoup jobs lost when the iron industry took a nosedive in the 1950s. After decades of mining, the state's reserves of high-quality iron ore dwindled, but mining engineers started finding ways to remove taconite, a mineral with low iron content, from rock, which helped the industry bounce back. In the meantime, Minnesota's Farmer Labor Party merged with the Democratic Party to form the Minnesota Democratic Farmer Labor Party in 1944, which continued to promote policies helping the average people. DFL leader Hubert Humphrey was a strong voice for civil rights throughout his career. As mayor of Minneapolis in the 1940s, Humphrey barred employers from racial discrimination in their hiring practices. At the 1948 Democratic National Convention, he made a dramatic appeal for civil rights, which led to the Democratic Party adopting civil rights as one of its major issues. Black Minnesotans had been working for decades to end racial discrimination, but by the 1960s, many stores, theaters, and other businesses still would not admit people of color. NAACP members and others took part in demonstrations and other protests, which little by little opened doors to African Americans. As a member of the U.S. Senate, Humphrey worked to pass the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which granted African Americans equal rights in employment, voting, and other areas. Meanwhile, the United States as a country was continuing to pull the rug out from under Native Americans. The Indian Restoration Act I mentioned before was full of good intentions, but in the 1950s, the U.S. government began a policy intent on having Native Americans assimilate into mainstream American society. The policy ended the federal government's recognition of the sovereignty of tribes, trusteeship over Native reservations, and the exclusion of state law's applicability to Native persons. From the government perspective, Native Americans were to become tax-paying citizens subject to state and federal taxes as well as laws from which they had previously been exempt. This was a whole clusterfuck of different policies collectively referred to as the Indian Termination Policy, a part of which was the Indian Relocation Act of 1956. It was a federal law encouraging Native Americans who lived on or near Indian reservations to relocate to urban areas for greater employment opportunities. Really, it was just the United States government giving Native Americans yet another giant middle finger and saying, we're not going to honor our treaties. But as a result, many Natives moved to the Twin Cities and in 1968 founded the American Indian Movement to fight discrimination. This movement spread nationwide and brought national attention to their rights. Remember how the Ojibwe people had to give up a bunch of their land back in 1837? They were meant to have the right to continue hunting, fishing, and gathering wild rice there, but the state laws prohibited them from doing so. 
1999, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that they did, in fact, have the right to carry on these traditional activities on the land they once occupied. So just general reminder that we are living on stolen land. Like I said last week, from fewer than 6,000 white settlers in 1850, Minnesota's official population grew to over 1.7 million by 1900. And in the past 120 years, we've grown to a whopping 5.6 million people as of 2020. More than 70% of Minnesotans live in or near cities. Minneapolis is the largest at 429,000 people, followed by the capital of St. Paul at 304,000. The Twin Cities metro area as a whole is home to 3.6 million people, including your boy, and that's over 60% of the entire state's population. The rest of Minnesota is peppered with small towns, and some of them are extra small. I thought my hometown of Watson was tiny, at just under 200 people, but the town of Tenney is home to only four. And most of the state's population is made up of mayo on Wonder Bread white people like me. 83% of us are of Western European descent, with 38% claiming German ancestry, 17% Norwegian, 12% Irish, 10% Swedish, and 5% English, among others. According to our most recent census, 6.4% of Minnesotans are African American, 4% are Asian from places like China, Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, India, and other Middle Eastern and Micronesian countries. 5.1% of Minnesota's population are of Hispanic or Latino origin, with 3.5% of those hailing from Mexico, 0.2% from Puerto Rico, 0.1% from Cuba, and one2 from other Hispanic and national origins. Minnesota is also home to the country's largest Somali population, with an estimated 57,000 people, the largest concentration outside of the Horn of Africa. Minnesota has grown into an incredibly diverse place, and I'm very excited to get into more of our state's culture with you in the next episode. But that's our show for this week. If you've got feedback for me, I would love to hear it. It helps me make the show even better. You can drop me a line over on Twitter at underscore Minnesota Jones if you have questions, specific topics you'd like me to cover, or if you want to just say hi. I'd like to thank the lovely Greta Niswan for the use of her song, Dear Misty Mountain, as our theme song. You can hear the full track as well as the rest of her album, The Ocean Shelf, on both Spotify and Apple Music. I'd also like to thank my darling friend, Bria Cameron, for designing our cover art, and Common Unity for having us on the network. If you head to commonunity.media, you can find other great shows like Roll for Chaos, Something to Pot About, and Bad, a show of cursed concepts. And if you like what you hear, we hope you'll consider supporting the Common Unity Patreon, where you can get great rewards like merch discounts, bonus episodes, and so much more, all while supporting artists and doing what they love. I'm not going to make you sit through any more of a Minnesota goodbye, but thank you again for listening. We'll see you in the next episode. This show is brought to you by Common Unity Media. Fun people, fun podcasts, fan-funded. Find more great shows at our website, commonunity.media. Thank you so much for listening.